Welcome to Compounding Capital, a podcast where we dive into the discovery process to help you compound your capital. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Discovery may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. Discovery is suitable for wholesale investors only. Past performance is not indicative of future performance. Welcome, my name is Chris Bainbridge and I'm joined by my co-host Mark Stavisich. How you going Mark? Going well, thanks Chris. How about you? Yeah, really well. The Founders Fund is concentrated in a handful of the best ideas. The fund moves when these companies update and typically moves more in line with the market in between. After full year reporting in August, our companies were quiet in September. Do you want to share your thoughts on how things went? There wasn't much news on September as investors digested the recent reporting season results. Markets were generally weak as interest rate expectations changed to be higher for longer. We saw the US 10-year rate hit 4.65%, the highest level since early 2007, as inflation expectations remain high post a surge in oil prices and economic growth remains resilient. The Founders Fund finished the month down 2.5%. This was a solid performance versus the index, which was down 5.3% in Kiwi dollar terms. To put things in context, in the 12 months since inception, the Founders Fund is up 44.4% versus the benchmark up 0.8% in Kiwi dollars. The fund's one-year performance was strong, but you can't make money out of the past. Year one simply set the benchmark. Our structure, one fund, small size, aligned team, is our edge. We're ambitious about the performance we can achieve in year two. Turning to contributors, do you want to share one of the companies which performed well during the month? Yes, contributing to performance was Aussie Broadband, ABB. We discussed ABB in our last podcast, but it was a strong performer during September as well. And there have been some interesting developments in the last 48 hours, so it's worth touching on it again. As a reminder, Aussie is Australia's fifth largest telco and will soon overtake Vocus to be the fourth largest. Aussie continued to re-rate in September on the back of positive NBN data showing strength in the more lucrative high-speed plans and supportive industry pricing environment from competitors. From a company perspective, positivity from management on the roadshow was bolstered by NBN data pointing to ABB taking 20% of ultra high-speed plans versus the current market share of just 7%. As we mentioned last month, the telco industry is notorious for consolidation of the list of players. And there was some interesting news out Friday night. Do you want to talk us through it? Hot off the press, after market on Friday 29th of September, ABB announced it had submitted a takeover offer for to acquire listed competitor Symbio. Symbio, along with Superloop, are the two other key listed Australian challenger telcos. Unlike Aussie and Superloop, Symbio is more business focused, providing communication services to serious global players like Alphabet, Microsoft, Zoom, and Cisco. Symbio has positioned itself as a disruptor of the legacy physical networks, benefiting from increased adoption of cloud-based telephony and remote conferencing communication, think Teams and Zoom. Like most takeover targets, Symbio shareholders have had a rough ride recently. Soaring to $11 per share in November 2021, Symbio has fallen to sub $2 pre-deal as a combination of compressed multiples for tech stocks, falling demand and increased competition from the likes of ABB. What did you think of Symbio's most recent result? Symbio delivered FY23 underlying EBITDA of $27.7 million. And X and Trado, this was 26.5, and that was 25% down on financial year 22. And as a result, Simeo also guided to FY24 EBITDA of between 30 to 35 million. 
While Symbio heralded FY24 guidance as a return to growth, this is being bolstered by the Entrado acquisition full-year contribution. The lack of growth in the key CPAS business was due to price competition caused from ABB and continued decline in the variable margin, which painted a grimmer picture. Yeah, completely agree. Shareholders likely felt relieved as Symbio has become the subject of a bidding war. Do you want to talk us through the competing offers? Yes, on the 1st of August, Superloop bid $3, which was $2.85 with a 15 cent dividend for Symbio. And this bid represented a 49% premium to the one month VWAP price. Sensible Symbio shareholders unleashed the rocket emojis. The rationale for Superloop was both fundamental and market driven. Fundamentally, Superloop provides data services while Symbio provides voice and messaging services. Both data and voice are typically required by customers, so combining the two product offerings over a single infrastructure platform would release value and significant cost synergies. From a market perspective, the proposed acquisition was highly creative for Superloop shareholders and would likely result in a combined group achieving the coveted ASX 300 index inclusion. In terms of accretion, we forecast 54 million EBITDA for Superloop, add on 33 for Symbio, and another 10 million for cost synergies, you come to 97 million pro forma FY24 EBITDA. That would mean the group would be trading at five and a half times EV to EBITDA post deal. ABB, in comparison, paid nine times for over the wire, inclusive of synergies, and is now trading at 10 times EV to EBITDA. The prospects for a multiple re-rate driven by the increased liquidity and index inclusion were highly likely. Do you have any thoughts on this? Importantly, in the context of the ABB deal, Symbio was already a significant Superloop customer. In 2021, Superloop announced that it had become the exclusive provider of MBM aggregation services to Symbio. The deal it was valued at over 25 million, making it Superloop's largest win and contemplated a quid pro quo whereby Superloop would expand its use of Symbio's voice offerings within its portfolio. We have to make some assumptions, but if we assumed a three-year term on that $25 million deal, that would be around $8 million of revenue from Symbio, which at a 30% gross margin would be around $2.4 million of gross profit. The deal expires in March 2024. On the 22nd of August, Superloop lifted the script cap and made a full and final bid with a drop-dead date of the 29th of September. Superloop appeared to be in the box seat until Aussie lobbed in a bid late after market on Friday. And now on Friday, ABB announced that it submitted an offer to acquire Symbio for $3.15. That $3.15 was 11% premium to Superloop's bid of $2.85. The combined businesses would be a significant voice and business telco in Australia with 1.1 billion in revenues, 150 to 160 million in EBITDA. Depending on one's views of synergies here, the deal could be between 12 to 30% EPS accretive with 12% only assuming 10 mil of cost synergies and 30% assuming 25 million of cost synergies. Strategically, ABU would be removing its primary and arguably only competitor in cloud-based telephony. The key question for ABB will be, what does it do with Symbio's Asian operations? There will likely be a period of indigestion as there was post the over the wire deal, where systems need to be integrated and teams molded together under the one brand. ABB's Debt levels will also be back up towards the two times net debt to EBITDA, meaning other acquisitions will be off the table in the short term. From a market perspective though, the deal would increase ABB's liquidity and propel it on the path to the ASX 200. What's your view on how this plays out? 
The big question is, will Superloop respond with a higher bid for Symbio? 90% probability that they will. There's a significant amount of accretion on the table for Superloop shareholders, even at a higher price. Superloop's problem is that ABEB has a bigger budget and a higher multiple. Put another way, Superloop's bringing a knife to a gunfight. My view is that we see a bidding war, but that Aussie emerges as a winner. As an interesting aside, if Superloop don't secure Symbio, what's next for Superloop shareholders? First, Aussie will likely terminate Symbio's deal with Superloop. On our estimates, that would be a 2 million hit to Superloop's EBITDA from FY25. From a market perspective, a major rationale for the transaction was scale. If Superloop can't acquire Symbio, they will likely to continue to hunt for acquisitions. However, perhaps the most obvious outcome would be that if Superloop's share price continues to languish, ABB acquires it after it's digested Symbio. ABB was a contributor during the month. Do you want to talk to one of the detractors? Detracting from performance in September was maintenance and remediation contractor Duratec. Duratec pulled back after management sold a small portion of their holdings. Post-sale, the founders continued to retain a 29% stake in the company and have stated that they have no intention to sell in the medium term. Director selling above a threshold is a red flag at Discovery. However, the sell down didn't meet that threshold and is easily explained in the context of a share price which is up about three times in the last year. This brings us to the levelling up section of our podcast. Compounding knowledge. What do you have for us, Mark? One video I watched this month was an interview between Brian Bears and Connor Haley. And both of these investors are based in Texas. Connor Haley runs Alta Fox, which was founded in 2018. And Brian Bears runs Bears Capital, which he founded in 2000. Each of these investors has been highly successful with their own firms. Bear's approach is more long-term quality growth, whereas Altafox is more opportunistic with higher turnover. Altafox may be known to investors in Australia as being an activist investor in EML with an 8% shareholding, and Connor actually sits on the board there. In the video, each of them detailed their firm's investment processes. They have similarities, which were high concentration, deep due diligence on positions, and focusing on that small and micro cap opportunities in the market. However, there were also many more differences in their investment style, which included portfolio turnover, the universe of companies, Outerfox looks global and, and can do unlisted, whereas Bears has been focused primarily on that US small and microcap part of the market. And Bears typically only focuses on those high return on capital sectors such as software and consumer discretionary. They also gave insights on when to sell, how to size positions, and managing the hiring process. What it showed was that there is no one way to invest successfully, but knowing what your edge is and designing your firm and processes to keep improving that edge is the key. It is well worth watching to learn from the two founders of these highly successful fund management firms. The episode can be found on YouTube by searching Brian Bears and Connor Haley. What do you have for us? I've got Tim Ferriss's podcast interview with Shane Paris on The Tim Ferriss Show. You'll know Tim Ferriss as the author of The 4-Hour Workweek. I'm pretty sure he was short about 60 or 70 hours there. Shane is a host of The Knowledge Project, which is a podcast aimed at helping people improve their decision making. The Knowledge Project is one of the best podcasts out there, especially the early episodes which have a particular focus on investing. The interview is two hours long, but I have some hacks to help improve you your RIT. First, run it at least 1.5 times, and you can actually run this one at two times if you want. Second, skip the first 20 minutes. 
From 20 minutes to 30 minutes, they discuss the importance of challenging your kids. In a world of steamroll appearance, this is an interesting counterpoint. Basically, people grow through adversity. If you want effective adults, challenge them. I'd then suggest skipping to the 40 minute mark where Shane expands on the key idea that positioning determines your results. By positioning, he means circumstances. The importance of positioning relates to all areas of life. Don't put yourself in a position where your circumstances dictate your actions. Essentially, if you put Buffett in a bad position, he'll do badly. The key point is that from an investing perspective, he doesn't leave himself exposed. He avoids leverage and keeps a cash buffer, so he's never a forced seller. Positioning implies in all areas. Ask yourself, have you eaten well, slept well, worked well? You need to put yourself in a position to help perform. In terms of the two other final parts of the interview worth highlighting, the third is at about an hour or five minutes in where they discuss the importance of rules. I love rules. Rules turn desired behavior into default behavior. Finally, at about one hour, 44 minutes, they discuss how to make better decisions. There's three key points here. First, positioning, which we've already discussed. Don't let circumstances dictate your outcomes. Secondly, outcome over ego. What are you truly trying to manage to? Thirdly, think independently. Avoid groupthink and crowded trades. Is it you who's doing the thinking? Or is it the circumstances slash group thinking for you? The interview is a distillation of the key hacks and techniques Shane has learned as a host of the Knowledge Project and well worth a listen. Even if you don't learn something new, the basics are key. If you want results, you need to keep putting in the reps. This brings us to the most exciting part of our show. Leaders and laggards from the ASX this month. What do you have for us today, Mark? This month I have a laggard and the company is Sigma. Sigma was a laggard as it fell 14% in September. So what is Sigma? Well, Sigma is in the wholesale distribution of pharmaceutical and medical products in Australia. There are three large players in the market. We've got API, which is formerly listed and is now owned by the listed conglomerate West Farmers. EBOS, which is the New Zealand dual listed company, and we have Sigma. The three combined have a market share of over 80% of pharmaceutical distribution. The industry is fiercely competitive and regulated. Distributing medicine under the Pharmaceutical Benefit Scheme, or PBS as they call it, allows for fixed wholesaler margins per dispense, which is roughly around 7.5% of the manufacturing price. So can you run us through what happened during the month? Sigma reported its half-year result in September. On the face of it, EBIT of 22.4 was up 300% over the prior year. However, digging deeper, the $22 million included a one-off $9.2 million gain on sale. Normalised EBIT was $13.2 million and would suggest that Sigma is on track towards the low end of their guidance range of $26 million to $31 million on an underlying basis. The positive is that CapEx has moderated as the distribution centre upgrades are now done and the business is effectively ex-CapEx. As we like to do, let's look at Sigma through the 4Ps framework. So first up, predictability. Well, demand for medicines is fairly predictable and Sigma do have long-term contracts with their customers. However, on the horizon, there is some uncertainty with the change in the doctor prescribing period, which is changing from 30 to 60 days from the 1st of September. This is gonna mean less frequent ordering of medicines and prescriptions, which could put downward pressure on the revenue of wholesalers as it creates less spillable transactions for them. I'll tackle profitability in people. In terms of profitability, 
making money in a regulated, low margin, capital intensive business with large customer concentration doesn't sound like fun and means the returns on capital are low. The industry has excess capacity which has been driving profit margins lower. Indeed, management admitted to us that Australia should really only have two wholesalers in the market instead of the three that exist now. On the flip side, the trend is positive. With a focus on operational efficiencies post the ERP integration, EBIT margins are forecast to increase to 1.5 to 2.5%, which is more than a doubling of current margins. In terms of people, Sigma has a new CEO in Vikesh from Sunder. Vikesh has a strong pedigree as a successful CEO of South African pharmacy chain Clicks. Vikesh is turning around the business by reducing costs and focusing on a more private label products which offer gross margins of 30% versus 7% margins on the PBS medicines. In short, Vikesh seems to be the right person for the job. And lastly, potential. What everyone is excited about here is the Chemist Warehouse Agreement for the supply of PBS medicines that they just recently won off eBoss. Chemist Warehouse will be issued 127 million shares in Sigma as consideration for the contract. So Sigma effectively gave away 12.7% of their company to win this deal. That's outrageous, I know, but as the CEO Vikesh admitted to us, they didn't really have any leverage in the negotiations. The contract was a must win for Sigma as they also risked losing their existing $1 billion FMCG distribution contract that they had with Chemist Warehouse already. Sigma estimates that the total sales of products to Chemist Warehouse will generate a minimum of $3 billion in revenue in the first full year of the contract. Chemist Warehouse was so important to win because they are growing much faster than the rest of the pharmacy industry. Chemist Warehouse has approximately 50% market share of pharmacies in Australia and is growing over 10%. This means that Sigma will grow alongside them at at least that rate, while the rest of the market is likely to be barely growing. It's a great point, the Chemist Warehouse contract is a game changer. However, it doesn't begin until the 1st of July 2024. Until then, there will be startup costs associated with the contract. It's also working capital intensive, acquiring $150 million of additional inventory as stockholdings are built up. The extra volume of the incremental $2 billion on sales is critical to achieving Sigma's medium term EBIT margin of 1.5 to 2% given the first half was only at 70 basis points on an underlying basis. Like a good Martin Scorsese film, there's some interesting Italian connections at play here, with the HMC Capital Partners Fund taking a 20% interest in Sigma. The founder of the HMC Capital is David DePillo, and his cousin is Chemist Warehouse co-founder Martin Verrocchi. Together, they effectively control 30% of Sigma, and can use the might of Chemist Warehouse to help the Sigma group achieve the necessary scale. So finally, what is it worth? We need to look forward to financial year 26 here as that will be the first full year of the Chemist Warehouse deal. And by that stage, the Chemist Warehouse business could be worth three and a half billion and the core Sigma business another two and a half billion. That provides total revenue of six billion and applying a 2% EBIT margin will give us 120 million EBIT compared to the current enterprise value of 830 million. EBOS, which is a good comparison, is a much larger business and deserves to trade at a higher multiple. They trade at 13.5 times EV to EBIT. So if we apply a 12 times multiple to Sigma's FY26 earnings, this can provide an upside of 100% in the next two and a half years. However, there is a fair bit of execution risk to achieve that outcome. 
We've got Sigma on the watch list, but the better prescription would be investing in Chemist Warehouse if the rumoured IPO ever does happen. What do you have for us today? I have a leader. That leader is Electro-Optic Systems, or EOS. EOS was up 12% during the month and up 100% over the last 6 months. However, it's been a wild ride for EOS shareholders. EOS is an Australian defence manufacturer specialising in remote weapon systems and satellite tracking technology. EOS's main source of revenue is its remote weapon systems. Think 113mm to 30mm cannons positioned atop tanks or bushmasters which can precisely destroy moving targets. EOS also has a burgeoning business in naval communications which is arguably the unpolished jewel in the crown. Let's start with a quick history lesson. EOS was founded in 1983 by Dr. Ben Green, an advisor from NASA. In early 2020, EOS had a market capitalization of greater than $1 billion. Today, it's valued at closer to $168 million. So what went wrong? The problem that has plagued EOS has been a lack of commercial discipline. Throughout its history, the company has invested significant funds into R&D programs that would not often advance to commercialization stage, severely weakening the balance sheet. That was occurring in 2020. The straw that broke the camel's back was a $500 million contract to the Middle East where EOS, surprisingly, wasn't able to secure payment. The combination of a weak balance sheet and lack of cash flow from this major contract meant EOS nearly turned insolvent. In August 2022, new management was brought in. They have achieved $25 million in annual cost savings in Q by Q1 2023. They ceased investing in Spacelink and they agreed a new financing arrangement with shareholder Washington Solpats at a 19% interest rate. More on that later. The new management team have done an excellent job focusing on cost discipline and responsible growth. Do you want to talk us through the bull case? The bull case is that EOS is a market leader with strong tailwinds whose IP alone is likely worth more than the current market cap. Let's touch on each of these. The tailwinds. The Russian invasion of Ukraine and geopolitical tensions in Asia-Pac is driving increased military expenditure globally. Total military expenditure is increasing by 3.7% in 2022 to reach a new high of 2.2 trillion US dollars. Australia is no slouch here, spending 2% of their GDP on defence. And a strong sign that defence spending is on the rise, even classic defence sponging New Zealand has agreed to increase defence spending. New Zealand currently only spends, uh, please invade me, 1.2% of GDP per annum, but this will increase by a heady 4% per annum over each of the next four years. Macro tailwind tick. <clears throat> to capitalize on these tailwinds, you also want market leadership. EOS has a high level of IP developed over four decades in the international defense and space markets. Importantly, the company's R400 remote weapon system is a market leading product. And the recent material contract wins in both EOS defense system and the EOS space systems underscores demand for their products. In the last six months, EOS has secured $650 million in contracts. This is double the amount won in the prior periods. Now, on IP, stepping back, EOS's technology is probably worth more than its current market cap. This is evident in EOS's naval SATCOM solution, which is the overlooked jewel in the crown. EOS is the market leader in naval SATCOM. Bandwidth data is exploding. And this connectivity needs to be secured. EOS has a unique pulse technology which allows for higher bandwidth with more security. Demand for this product is accelerating. After growing at 20% per annum for four years at 25% EBITDA margin, revenue growth accelerated to 50% in the first half, and there's no signs of this level of growth slowing. 
Did you pick up any other bull points here? You're right. In terms of Naval SATCOM, EOS is only scratching the surface. Naval Comms for Crews is a niche area where primes such as Raytheon and Harris have not developed tech. It would take up to seven years to develop, test and actively commission a competing product. It would make sense for one of these global weapon manufacturers to acquire EOS for this tech alone, particularly as they could roll it out to the US Navy. That's the bull case. I'll laser in on some points which are making investors gun shy. First, predictability. There isn't much. EOS has been a significant beneficiary of the Ukraine war, with practically over $400 million of the contracts won directly or indirectly linked to the conflict. A change in circumstances in this theatre could see EOS's order book disappear faster than David Copperfield after the 1990s. Even if the war continues, EOS's revenue remains highly unpredictable. EOS has $645 million of contracted revenue at the 30th of June. However, the timing of contracted revenue recognition is unknown, and the contracts remain subject to a number of conditions. Second, profitability. EOS posted an EBITDA loss of $15 million in the first half of 23 on $75 million of revenue. With a $100 million OPEX base and a 40% gross margin, EOS likely need $250 million of revenue per year just to break even. There's been limited evidence to date of EOS's ability to secure the requisite workflow to sustainably deliver larger than $250 million of revenue per annum. What did you pick up? I'll add one more point on profitability. EOS is currently over-earning as it receives a higher margin of weapons delivered to the Ukraine. More importantly is the balance sheet. The lack of profitability brings us to EOS's key problem, its balance sheet. Recall EOS secured a lifeline facility from its major shareholder in 2022. That facility of 70 mil was accruing interest at a rate of over 20%. 27 mil was repaid in September with a further 70 million plus to be repaid over the next 18 months. The flurry of brokers clamoring to initiate on EOS suggests a capital raise is in the offering to pay down this debt. Overall, management have done a fantastic job of troubleshooting EOS's problems. EOS has strong IP, which could deliver significant value in the hands of the right owner. However, the base rates for making money from unprofitable subscale weapons manufacturers with distressed balance sheets are lower than the chances of the All Blacks' passive defence working against the Irish. Right, let's wrap it there. Thanks everyone for listening. If you have any follow-up, you can contact us at info at discoveryfunds.co.nz. Until next time, good luck compounding your capital.